Hey, everybody. Welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, joining the show today from Turkey. And this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean basin. Today, Dr. Junko Takeda joins the show for a conversation that's going to explore what scholars know about the period of time when Marseille became part of France. Junko Takeda is a professor of history at Syracuse University, based in the U.S. Her research areas are French history, statecraft and revolutions, and early modern globalization. She's written many publications over her career, including authoring these two books as examples. Iran and a French Empire of Trade, 1700-1808, The Other Persian Letters. That was published in the Oxford University Studies in the Enlightenment series by Liverpool University Press. And Between Crown and Commerce, Marseille in the Early Modern Mediterranean. And that was published by John Hopkins University Press. And Professor Takeda joins the show from the state of New York in the U.S. Welcome to the show, Junko. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to talk about Marseille. I'm excited to chat with you today, Junko. Okay, so that we have a date flagged or a circuit date. What, when do scholars believe or know that Marseille became part of France? Right, great question. So Marseille is France's oldest city. Um, geographically, it's located on the southern tip of, uh, of France, right against the Mediterranean. Um, and it's one of the oldest continuously inhabited cities in Europe. But it really didn't become French um, until nominally in the 15th century, the actual legal completion of the handover of Marseille with, uh, to France occurred in 1486 under Charles, uh, Charles VIII, King, uh, King of France. But really, when we think about Marseille as a French city, 1660 is the date that really pops out. Okay, and we'll obviously spend some, some time around the, the, the 1660s. Why, uh, why did you call it France's oldest city? Well, it was it was founded. Um, it was one of the earliest um, inhabited towns. It was founded by Greek sailors from Phocea around 600 BCE, and it wasn't called Marseille back then. It was called Massilia, um, and it was a commercial, uh, cultural center in the ancient Mediterranean world. Um, it was sacked by Julius Caesar as punishment, actually, for supporting his rival Pompey in the Roman civil wars. Um, but across uh, the classical period, Middle Ages and early modern period, it was continuously inhabited. Um, and as such, it's really one of the oldest settlements in France. Okay, so then working our way to the 17th century, so coming up to that point in time, so be before it was officially part of France, You'd mentioned 1486 was a significant date in Marseille's history. So, right. yeah, so coming up, coming up to uh, the 17th century, can you expand on then what the status of Marseille was? Sure, sure. Um, so I can go into a little bit of detail about what happened in the 14, really 81 to, to 86 period. Um, first, so Marseille, as you know, sits on the edge of the province of Provence in France. And for centuries, Provence was actually ruled by independent counts. 
um, from, from several dynasties across the medieval period, across the early portion of the early modern period. Um, and uh, most notably, the counts belonged to several houses, the House, uh, house of Barcelona, for example, the House d'Anjou, uh, House de Valois. Um, and in the 14th and 15th centuries, they were by that point ruled by the Angevin Capetian and Valois-Anjou dynasties. And these counts who were situated um, as the leaders of Provence, they really helped uh, establish Marseille as a wealthy town, a maritime trading town with extensive connections with uh, the Mediterranean world. And they allowed Marseille a lot of autonomy. Um, when certain counts tried to tinker with Marseille's independent status, it would, it would rebel, right? Um, now, going up to 14, the 1480s, there were the last two independent rulers of Provence before Provence in general was sucked into the kingdom in the 15th century. And these last two independent rulers were René, uh, good King René of Anjou, and uh, his nephew, Charles, Charles III. Now, René was Count of Provence from uh, 1434 to 1480. And uh, he was the son of the King of Naples, Louis d'Anjou, and uh, a princess of Aragon, Yolanda of, of Aragon. And his sister, and this is important, his sister was the Queen of France, Marie. Now, Marseille's uh, maritime trade did extremely well under this good King René, or the Count René. He fortified Marseille, he built several ramparts around the harbor, and he really was instrumental in raising Marseille's status from a regional town um, to a really kind of important Mediterranean port city. He also used it as a strategic base, uh, complete with a fortress, to, um, to, expand, to expand his, his, his power in the Mediterranean. He launched attacks, he reconquered Sicily. Now, René had a bunch of children. He had over 10 children, but all of them died before he did. Um, and his only heir, as a result, was this nephew, Charles. Um, so Charles took over for a year after René died, but he too died in 1481. And in his will, René's nephew, Charles, who had just been king for a year, left the province of Provence to the French king, King Louis XI. So basically, the title Count of Provence became one of the titles of the French monarch. So when Provence passed by inheritance from the counts to the kings of France, Marseille, as part of Provence, entered into the French realm with Provence in 1481. But the actual legal completion of this handover um, didn't occur until a few, late, a few years later, excuse me, in 1486, um, which was during the reign of the French king, Charles VIII. Okay, interesting. What language in this in the in the period of time that you were just speaking about there so the 15th century what would the, be the primary language that would have been spoken in uh in marseille that's a great question you know i mean this this is a question that historians often ask in terms of 
you know, kind of looking at cities, especially around the borderlands or the periphery of uh, what's geographically metropolitan France, and asking the question, when did these cities become French, right? Because the answer, there, there's several answers. So there's a legal kind of when did a city become a part of France? But in terms of French acculturation, when did that really happen? And there are historians of modernity who would actually argue that, you know, the kind of things that we typically think of now as um, kind of signaling Frenchness, French educational system, French language, et cetera, wasn't really there um, until even the last century, the 19th century. Um, but in terms of the language, you know, Southern, French, Southern France was heavily Occitan. Um, you know, there's uh, so Provençal, Occitan, they're not really speaking um, the French uh, language until much later. Okay, so so you basically uh, said, and using using my my words, but I but but basically what I heard was Provence Provence becomes part of France, and Marseille goes with it. It's part of the package. So so what is it about then? So if that happened, uh, my understanding, and please uh, uh, bring bring it up. Uh, as as necessary, if something sounds inaccurate with the dates right. here, but if, but if that occurred in 1486, mm -hmm. you had mentioned in I believe your first response that there's there's another significant milestone in the 1660s. Right. So so what is it? What was it about that first somewhat changing of sovereign status that scholars don't quite declare that as the date in which uh, Marseille became part of France. Right. So 1486 is when it nominally legally right um, is handed over to the French king. But in terms of it kind of administratively, politically speaking, really becoming a French city with royalists, that doesn't happen until 1660. So I can kind of go through this century-long process, um, if, if you don't mind. So in 1486, like I said, the French king Charles VIII um, legally completes this handover of Marseille or, or Provence with Marseille in it. Um, and this legal handover is kind of accomplished through the guidance of a local representative for the union. He's the local governor of Provence, and he happens to be a Marseillaise. His name is uh, Palamed de Forbin. And so he is very interested in preserving the territory's autonomy as much as possible, even though nominally it's going to now become a part of France. And in the language of this handover, he says that Provence, and this is a quote, joins not as an accessory to a principle, but as principle to another principle. Right. So he he has the king assure that Provence would retain administrative and political autonomy under the authority of a, a lieutenant general who's going to be in the service of the king. So in other words, the French crown installs a royal governor. Um, it also installs an intendant in the regional capital of Aix-en-Provence, uh, a few miles north of, uh, north of Marseille. But it brings the province into the orbit of France as what's known as a petita. It's distinguished um, with a greater level of independence from a pays d'élection. So the question is, what does this mean for Marseille? Uh, Marseille has its traditions of Roman law, administrative liberties. So its status as an aristocratic city-state remained virtually unchanged despite this handover. So Marseille continues um, to consolidate a reputation as a fiercely independent kind of anti-royalist city. Um, it refuses 
uh, French attempts at administrative centralization, uh, even though the French kings are gradually trying to push deeper into Marseille kind of in terms of its politics. So for example, in the early 16th century, um, around the 1520s, 1530s, for example, France's King Francois I builds Marseille's famous island prison, uh, Chateau d'If, off the coast of the city. It's, it's created by him to defend the city, but really to defend France from attacks from the sea. Um, but across uh, the centuries, it also becomes a prison to lock up Marseillaise and lock up Provençal um, people, inhabitants whom the kings uh, find to be rebellious. Um, they lock up French Huguenot Protestants there as well. So there's this kind of love-hate relationship going on um, between the region, between, between Marseille and the central government. Um, if you look at the period between this 1486 marker and 1660, Marseille's administrative um, structures, its legal structures, actually remain pretty intact as it had um, prior to this union. Now, its civic constitution um, or structure goes through some adjustments. Um, so, for example, most notably, there are three major adjustments across the late 15th century to the 17th century. There's um, the rule of Cosa, uh, from 1475, there's the rule of Saint-Vallier, um, 1492, I believe. And then the most kind of, um, the one closest to 1660 is the Reglement de Sceaux. So these constitutional changes basically just change the makeup um, uh, or, or, or change the size of the municipal council or city council, um, but consistently leaves the city's directorship to um, a handful of consuls, typically of noble descent. Uh, they're typically squires or nobles. Um, so by the, by the Reglement de Sauve in 1652, the city council's grown um, from what used to be like in, in the 70s to 300. So there are more people in the city council. Um, it's continuously ruled by a collection of, of nobles and it brings back also the ancient tradition they had followed in the classical times of election by lot. Um, but this basically um, completely transforms at the 1660 point. In that transition period, and they might not have known or everyone may not have known at the time it was a transition period, but in hindsight, it, it sounds like it was a transition period to becoming part of France fully. Was there, by, by, the, by this transition period, was, was there ever a... Uh, constitution, a written constitution in Marseille, and if there was, did it change at all by this by this transition period? Yeah. So these the, these rules um, that are written down basically changes um, the makeup of um, of how you know how Marseille is going to be run, right? How is it going to be administered? And what doesn't change is the fact that it's always ruled by a collection of consuls, um, and they're always coming from uh, the, the second estate, their noble descent, uh, uh, their, their noble descent. Um, and it's a, it, it's a city that's a commercial city, right? It's, it's very much um, dependent on its ties to the Mediterranean through, through maritime trade. But in 1660, the nobles are pushed out 
and there's a new constitution that's kind of framed um, in consultation with the king. And the king basically says, I don't want nobles anymore uh, post-1660. They're recalcitrant. They're always anti-royalist. They cause problems. And then he elevates an entirely new cadre of, of rulers. They're basically going to be bankers, merchants, more royalist, even though they still do push back against the king. Um, and this vastly transforms uh, the nature of the city. Okay, so that 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 that's one sign that it it during the transition period still had some autonomy. If as a city as a city it had it still had its own constitution. Mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. It has its municipal constitution that dictates that you know we are we are deciding who rules um, and who administers our city. Yeah, and it goes back to the classical kind of you know idea of Marseille as a republic or Massilia as a republic. Okay. So do you want to speak about then, Junko, uh, the circumstances that occurred that eventually had Marseille fully become part of France? Yeah, absolutely. So this is a, a kind of colorful period in, in the history of, of Marseille. So around the mid-17th century marker, um, the monarchy starts to really interfere um, with civic administration, and it increasingly... Uh, creates a volatile situation that begins to polarize royalists, so those who are going to be amenable to royal interference, um, against those who kind of mount the political platform, uh, the municipal platform, kind of brandishing the rhetoric of civic independence. Um, so what happens, this is a kind of 20-year, 20, 20, 30-year period, um, and it begins under the reign of French King Louis XIII um, in 1638. Now, Louis's chief minister, Cardinal Richelieu, uh, appoints or wants to appoint to first consulship his favorite, Antoine de Valdel. He's the lieutenant general of Marseille. But this is an opposition to the wish of the royal governor of Provence. Um, so here you have the crown interfering and meddling in local elections, basically. Now, two decades later, in 1657, I believe, the governor's son uh, takes revenge. So he elevates Valbel's enemies um, to consulships. This, is, uh, this group is led by Gaspard de Glandeve Moiselle. Um, and the crown is not happy about this. The crown actually charges Moiselle with les majestés, with treason, um, and accuses him for attempting to assassinate a royal magistrate. So you have the kind of um, these two groups, basically, the group that was uh, that the king wanted or the crown wanted to be put in charge of Marseille. And then you have the, uh, the governor of Provence saying, you know, here, here are here's my favorite. Here's my group. Now, the crown after um, they charge or after the crown charges this guy, Noiselle, with Les Majestés, then things further kind of escalate when the elections, the next elections come up for the city. The city's municipal government elections happens in 1659, and this completely breaks down in violence. So it's a kind of municipal civil war, um, but it's couched in terms of a battle against French royal absolutism. And this period is known as the Marseillaise Fronde. It kind of overlaps with another fronde or civil war that was happening across France um, between a very young King Louis XIV and some nobles who were taking advantage of the fact that he was a child. So now this is the pretext, this, uh, this municipal civil war um, is the pretext 
that Louis XIV, the Francis King, uses to march on Marseille physically. Um, he conquers the city and he brings it to su submission. And this is known as the conquest of 1660. And what's interesting about this, this period is that it really coincides with Louis XIV, this young king in his 20s, really starting to assert himself as an absolute monarch. Um, when he marches, he's riding into Marseille, he marches on Marseille. This young king, um, he was just fresh from military triumphs on his northern frontier. He was preparing to be married. Um, to his bride, Maria Teresa of Spain in the same year, 1660. So essentially this conquest, Marseille's conquest, was a detour that he was taking on the way to claim his bride um, from the north to the, the southern city of Marseille. And so he comes with an entire royal entourage. He arrives with his mother. He arrives with 600 troops. Um, he arrives in Aix-en-Provence within striking uh, distance of Marseille in March of 1660. And then he sends the royal governor of Provence with these 6,000 troops. And then his wedding procession marches over Marseille's ruined city gates. Uh, before he goes and, and gets married to his bride three months later in June of 1660. So it's a very visual conquest. Um, and then right on the heels of this conquest, the king orders a construction of a new fort, uh, Saint-Nicolas, it's still there. Um, and this, this fort is on the mouth of the port of Marseille with cannon facing the cities, this visual reminder um, for anyone. Uh, he's basically trying to discourage any more rebellions. Um, or fights for independence saying, we are ready to shoot on the city. Um, and so this, this conquest of Marseille ushers in um, a new era for, for both France and, and Marseille. Okay. At this point in time, were there any other cities in France that had substantial aut autonomy status? Mm, that's a good question. Um, that's not my specialization, but I know that across the period of the 17th century, there were lots, there were, there were several um, towns and cities that the French uh, were trying, or the French king, I should say, was trying to kind of um, put into submission, right? So there's an, there, there are a few sieges that are notable in the time period. Um, there's the famous siege of La Rochelle, for example, um, and that was a result of, um, of a battle or a struggle between Louis Thirteenth, I believe, of France and La Rochelle, which was a, a heavily Huguenot or Protestant uh, stronghold. And that was, that was a, a few decades earlier. I think it was in the 1620s, 16, late 1620s. Um, and that siege, for example, marks um, the height of this tension between uh, Catholics and Protestants. So there are a number of these kind of um, towns and cities that are, that are you know, the, the, the absolutist or, 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 or the kings, really, I should say, is tr are trying to establish absolute rule. There's a debate as to whether this was successful or not, or whether or not absolutism was successful. But it's really a century that's, that's one in which we can argue that um, the kings were trying to expand their power, both militarily, physically, as well as administratively. How would you describe the level of separatist actions and mindset in Marseille Mm. coming up to this to 1660 you'd mentioned i think it was in an earlier 
um, part that there there was some some activity or a belief system around, um, I, and I think that was the time when Provence became part of part of France. There was some people in Marseille that didn't didn't ag- agree with it. So right. how would you describe what's what's known or what you can infer was the level of uh, separatist energy in 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 the city before 1660 yeah um that's a, that's a great question you know i mean marseille is even now a very much um kind of has a reputation for being a difficult city when it comes to agreeing to um rules laws uh, initiatives that are kind of that that the city believes that um are imposed from above um, right now, even with COVID-19, for example, um, the kind of measures, restrictions um, that are coming out of Paris, for example, um, to maintain the health of, of the state, really, um, still kind of comes up against Marseille's arguments for, for independence, or, or, or not really independence, but for freedom. Um, um, freedom in terms of figuring out its own own, own rules, right? So, and, and what's interesting here is that they... They use, the city often uses its long history of independent rule um, as a justification. Um, and this was the case across the early modern period. You have, um, you have uh, civic leaders, for example, who very much establish a name for themselves, um, brandishing this rhetoric of republicanism, of its, it, you know, Marseille's status as a city-state. We need to kind of continue to remain so. Um, to maintain as much administrative independence as possible. And this does not end with 1660. I should, I should be clear about that. That even though that the, the crown installs a more royalist-leaning administration, that's not going to be nobles because it, it believes that the nobles are more likely to um, push for a kind of aristocratic city-state republic kind of status. The merchants themselves are often very much um, kind of situated uh, politically um, in a way that pushes back against administration. So I have several examples um, in the 1660s where royal projects for Marseillaise, um, uh, what's the word I'm, I'm looking for, um, transformation, does not go as smoothly as the crown would hope. Um, so for example, there are two main things that happened right in the decade of 1660. There's an urbanization project that um, the king's new controller general, Jean-Baptiste Colbert, tries to imbo- impose. He wants to realize his ambitions for royal aggrandizement and commercial expansion at the same time. Um, and so this controller general introduces several projects to transform Marseille um, into a center not just for Mediterranean trade, but Franco-Mediterranean trade. They really want to put a French stamp on it, um, specifically Franco-Ottoman trade. So when a city is no longer a quasi-independent city-state, how does it argue for more independence? Um, In the case of the urbanization project of 1666, um, the letters patent from 1666 basically says, we're going to totally transform the city and redesign it as a clean, spacious, quote, modern metropolis um, to facilitate trans-imperial trade, basically, but also to accommodate royal administrators in the royal arsenal. And the the civic leaders basically say, no, this is going to be detrimental to the city. Um, The city's 
you know, these these rulers now, the the city's uh, leaders now, they're they're no longer consuls. They're known as eshvan. They're basically aldermen. They completely oppose this project, saying that it's an imposition from outside. They say that decisions for urban development has to be deliver, deliberated in city council rather than uh, be imposed from the crown. They argue that urbanization, this massive expansion project, would spell the financial ruin, but also the moral ruin of Marseille's inhabitants. Um, they claim that old quarters would be devalued, foreigners would come and take their jobs, um, um, new, uh, basically, immigrants would, would steal work uh, and develop their own enterprises in the city. They argue that new taxes would ruin Marseille's economy. Um, and they also argue that more traffic, um, kind of uh, maritime traffic, uh, up to the levels that the that the crown wants, would bring in um, pestilential diseases, basically plague. Um, and that actually happens to to come true in 1720, the Great Plague of Marseille. So, in other words, these civic leaders continuously express ambivalence, um, both towards royal centralization, but also towards globalization. And this kind of rhetoric continues across the 17th century and into the 18th century. After King Louis XIV's visit to Marseille, did he did he get to Spain and did he get married? Yeah, he did get married. Yep, he he marries uh, Maria Theresa and uh, yeah, and, and what the, the the other important thing about that marker 1660 not just for Marseille but also for for France is that he's basically now no longer a child king, right? So he marries Maria Theresa and it really ushers in a new era for himself. Um, his chief minister, uh, Mazarin, dies the same year that he gets married. Um, and he announces that from then on, he's going to assume complete personal control of the crown. So he says, I don't want a prime minister anymore. I am the ruler. I'm, I'm uh, the monarch. And so instead, he taps a controller general without as much kind of uh, perceived power as a prime minister. Um, and this is a guy who's going to try to realize all of Louis XIV's ambitions for royal aggrandizement. So it's a, it's a really important date, not just for Marseille in terms of its transition into a kind of um, uh, a, French, uh, a French city, but also for the French crown as the king tries to establish himself as a more a solely powerful ruler. When it became part of France administratively in 1660, can you speak about the main, the main ways that it changed? From a governance perspective, yeah. So, um, so now, in place of um, uh, aristocratic consuls, right? You have a new collection of aldermen. Uh, it's called a échevinage, um, chosen from the city's merchant elite and the banking elite. Um, so, what's happening here is that the crown imagines a more compliant civic leadership. These are people whose status is um, lower than the nobles, right? Um, they, are, they are merchants, they are traders. They're, I mean, if, if we were to say it in our own kind of uh, language of, you know, modern language, they're new money as opposed to, to old establishment. Um, so the, the hope is that they're going to try to become, uh, or the, the crown's hope is that this will allow for Marseille to transition smoothly into a royalist city. Now, in terms of what, what visually changes um, 
and what administratively changes across the 1660s. A, the, the agrandissement de 1766, this is the urbanization project I was talking about. They do push back, but ultimately they do it. Um, so the city's Eshvan completely opposed this project initially, citing all those things I had mentioned earlier, but ultimately they agree to a kind of scaled down project um, that they're able to wrest control of from the royal, uh, the royal intendant, Nicolas Arnoul. And so these échevins take charge of the agrandissement on their own. And so, so long as it's perceived and understood as a local project, um, they were okay with it. So they formed their own municipal bureau d'arrondissement. De, de, um, they employed lo local architects um, to help realize um, it actually triples the city, the tripling of their city. So what they do is they reject royal plans um, that basically uh, wanted to, the city to be kind of uh, recreated as an austere French city with kind of French boulevards. Um, instead, they use Italian styles uh, with decor that kind of call attention to their own city's history, the city's maritime trade. So if you look at some of the buildings from the time period, they have sea gods and tritons and uh, things like that. So basically, architecturally and um, administratively, this agrandissement plays out in a way that privileges local needs and local interests. Um, it really kind of, uh, what's the word, mutates, I think, from a royal project to our Marseillaise one. Now, the other main thing that happens administratively in the 1660s as a result of the conquest of Marseille is the famous Edict of 1669. Um, and this is another uh, royal project for commercial expansion, um, and it butts heads with local leaders. Um, so this happens when Colbert decides to restructure not only the civic administration, but Marseille's trade. Um, and he wants to put it directly more under royal control. And so he issues this edict of 1669 that establishes Marseille as a duty-free port with a monopoly over the Levant trade with the Ottoman Empire. And this is a very successful edict. Um, it inaugurates basically a century of unprecedented commercial growth, unprecedented commercial expansion for France into the Mediterranean uh, trade zone. Um, it basically does this by abolishing all the duties, taxes on goods that land in Marseille that they previously had to pay. So this is a, basically a strategy to attract foreign merchants into the city. Um, and so there are more ships coming in, dropping goods, right? The, the port emerges as a global node for merchants, not just from the Levant, but also from the North Sea, um, the Americas, the German states, the Indies. So by the end of the 18th century, by the end of the old regime, before the French Revolution, you see ships leaving Marseille's port for Martinique, for India, for the Antilles, the east coast of Africa. Um, so what's, you know, the question for me was when I wrote my book, my first book, why would the city's leaders pro protest this, this edict initially, if this edict um, as one can see historically, kind of from the vantage point of a historian, um, can see that it was successful. What, what did they find? Against, what, was, what was the argument against it, right? Um, now, for the city's leaders, this project was like the agrandissement. This was an initiative that was imposed from outside, imposed by the French crown. So they challenged this liberalization of port um, from the moment this idea was floated. Um, the Chamber of Commerce, the city's, uh, this, Marseille has a very powerful chamber of commerce 
Um, it was the first chamber in France. It was actually founded in 1599. And this chamber of commerce basically argues that this edict does not suit the financial interests of Marseille's merchant class, merchant community. Um, they project that abolishing taxes and duties on goods arriving into the city would basically deprive the income that the Chamber of Commerce spends. Um, the, the Marseille's Chamber of Commerce basically spends the money that they get from the taxes, um, the port taxes on things like port maintenance, policing um, to prevent smuggling, um, they paid actually for the stipend of the French ambassador in Constantinople. They're actually responsible for several kind of um, uh, several things. And so they project that even though, so if you were to uh, open up the, the city to, to duty-free trade and increase port traffic, this would feed contraband. This would make Marseille um, a target for foreigners who are going to take advantage of the city to the city's detriment. They see that Marseille would become a target for epidemic diseases. Um, and then Marseille basically says, you guys are small-minded. You guys are greedy. You just want to run things your way and, and you know, just, just do things that are good for you and not for the city, uh, not for the, the state at large. Um, so it takes about five years to hash out the terms of this edict. It's ultimately approved and issued in 1669, but it's really this kind of line-by-line line argument to hash out the terms that are going to be okay with the city leaders, the Echevin. Um, so ultimately, when it's issued in, in 1669, it does abolish all port duties, um, but it replaces it with one new tax, and this is called the Cotimo on, on foreign ships. And so that the funds from that are able are, are, are supposed to be able to pay for the expenditures of the city's chamber. The other interesting thing about this edict of 1669, and it has to do with the kind of relationship between centralization and globalization, is that the edict invites specifically has several lines in there that, that says we are going to invite foreign merchants, um, especially Armenians and Jews, to bring their goods, bring their raw materials from the Levant, bring in technologies for textile manufacturing, which um, actually are, are much more kind of at that time um, developed than what they have in France. So not just raw materials, cottons and silks and so forth, but also um, uh, kind of technologies and, and um, uh, industrial technologies in textile manufacturing in particular uh, for trading in Marseille. And this is a very sticky point for, for Marseille as leaders, but also for the Marseille as inhabitants. This, um, this, this edict, once it opens up, um, and invites um, people to come to Marseille, migrants to come to Marseille and trade, but also to establish themselves. Um, this is a long conversation that continues ac across the late 17th and early 18th centuries, where, where, where the civic leaders and, 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 uh, and, and citizens are saying, you know, we don't like this. We don't like that there are more Jews in the city. We don't like that there are more Armenians. Um, and there's a lot of pushback that continues across the period. It sounds like it was uh, very cosmopolitan. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, as a result of this edict, I think the population doubled from somewhere around 50,000 to 100,000 by uh, the end of the century. So it doubled, you know, the, the city itself triples in the period, uh, the 40 years between 6060 and uh, 1700. 
and the the city's demographics really, you know, it explodes. Now there's a plague of of 1720 um, as a result of of increased um, maritime trade and, and movement. There's a there's a great plague of Marseille between 1720 to 1723, um, and that. Uh, three-year epidemic basically halves the city once more uh, to, to 50,000. So we're back again um, at uh, the numbers that we saw around the time of this transfer, 1660. But then across the 18th century, it picks up, trade, pick, trade volume picks up. Charles Carrier, does, uh, uh, he's one of the foremost uh, scholars of, of Marseille's commercial expansion across the 18th century. And so he kind of charts the, the ways in which they really built up and out after uh, the Great Plague of Marseille. But yeah, absolutely a cosmopolitan city. If you look at some of the images from the time period, there's a famous um, painting of the port of Marseille. There's a, there's a French painter, Joseph Vernet, who did a whole series of paintings um, of various French um, towns and cities, particularly maritime ports around uh, 1750, I believe. And so he has this great tableau of Marseille's port. And what's really notable about this painting is that the port is peopled with people from everywhere, right? So you see um, Ottoman subjects, you see these Levantine traders um, in their turbans and, and, and whatnot, um, kind of trading and, and mingling with the people. You see the, the slaves, um, the galley slaves there working at port as well. So just visually, um, as well as kind of commercially, um, it's very much a, uh, a city open to the world outside. Okay. Wrapping up the conversation soon, Junko, in terms of, mm -hmm. in terms of provinces or administrative regions, wh wh whatever nomenclature properly fits, by the late 17th century, did the Kingdom of France have the, a concept of dividing the state into administrative regions? And if so, was Marseille at that point in time still considered part of Provence? Yeah, so I mean, the the kind of the nomenclature for the the provinces or administrative units, I should say, um, of France uh, trans dramatically transformed um, with the French Revolution, right? Seventeen, the Revolution of seventeen eighty nine. Prior to that, there were pédita, uh, pédilection. Um, so there are kind of two different forms of or, or structures, I guess, of, of, of provinces. One that has a little bit more autonomy. Um, like I was saying, I think a, a little earlier when when um, when Provence was brought into um, the French state, it was brought into as a kind of pédita, uh, distinguished with a greater level of independence. Now, with um, the French Revolution, um, the the kind of administrative units transformed. Um, the these depart they, they were henceforth henceforth called uh, departments. So the modern department system, um, kind of the provincial units was decreed, I think in 1720, uh, February or March. Um, and this was a kind of attempt to recreate and realign the boundaries that were kind of um, chosen to, in an attempt to kind of erase 
differences, erase uh, administrative differences, erase cultural differences, and bring into French administration a much more homogeneous um, structure. Um, and boundaries were set so that um, all the settlements across France was within a day's ride, I think, to the capital of the department. So this was to ease kind of transparency um, and security. And what's also kind of interesting about this transformation in the nomenclature of departments um, is that they're, they're trying to create a more rational, um, a, a rational um, kind of uh, strategy uh, method for bringing these provinces into the orbit of the French state in ways that was much more consistent and standardized than what you see in the period that I study and the period I talk about, in which you know there were still lots of regional differences and lots of regional uh, differences in terms of autonomy, differences in terms of how they um, kind of um, imagine their relationship vis-a-vis -vis the French crown. So still, uh, really up until the French Revolution, despite this kind of bringing in of Provence and bringing in Marseille into the orbit of the French state, it's still very much um, an inconsistent, um, kind, of, kind of diverse, I, I, I guess diversity is the right word to use here, um, diversity of, um, of autonomy that you don't have after the French Revolution just a few decades later. Is there anything we haven't covered in this conversation, Junko, that you want to make sure gets across as it relates to this topic in the episode? Or is there something that was covered that you want to make sure is emphasized? Mm, yeah. Oh, well, I, can, I can talk for days about Marseille, so I'm not sure you want me, you want to open it up to a longer conversation. Um, but, you know, I mean, one of the periods that I love love kind of looking at and emphasizing when I teach the history of France and teach the history of globalization in particular in France is to look at the Great Plague of Marseille, you know, so the kind of um, the, the 1720s, because you really kind of, I think this plague really highlights um, the continued ambivalence that Marseille has, uh, not just with royal centralization, um, but also with uh, globalization, right? So this ambivalence in terms of its own status um, as a maritime cosmopolitan port. And that is something you still see to this day. Um, Marseille is, uh, has one of the largest populations of, uh, of North Africans, of migrants, refugees, Muslims in France. And as a result, you also, I mean, it's a very visually cosmopolitan city, um, very different from, from Paris in that sense. But this uh, kind of multicultural, this this kind of um, this this cosmopolitanism creates some backlash. Um, it's a place. It's a city that continues to kind of engender a lot of far right activity. Um, it's a place that continues to kind of try to work out what does it mean for Marseille. What does cosmopolitanism mean for Marseille? What does globalization mean for Marseille? Um, and they have these kind of very um, kind of uh, well-known reminders of how it can it can get wonky for them. The Great Plague of, Plague of Marseille that was brought by the ship, the Grand Saint Antoine, from um, its its kind of travels around the Levant, right? Even though plague was endemic, um, uh, historians have found that the bubonic plague was pretty endemic to Europe. It wasn't the kind of um, disease that's brought from outside is 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 kind of the rhetoric of the time period. 
Um, but the idea was that, you know, foreigners um, can kind of threaten the city, foreign diseases can, can threaten the city. That was the, that was the kind of uh, mentality. And that, that kind of idea still pervades, I think, in, in many ways um, in the 21st century. Okay, at a personal level, Junko, your favorite French city and why? Oh, I would still, I would have to say it's Marseille. You know, it's, it's, I, I lived there actually. Um, I, I lived in Aix and I, I worked in Marseille for about three years as, um, as uh, a graduate student when I was training and when I was um, writing my first book about Marseille. Uh, so I have a very soft spot for the city. I love it, love it, love it. I can't wait to return. <laughs> Okay, and I and I and I said uh, personal at the start because I really didn't want that question to become leading a leading question. Of course, but, but your answer came across very sincere. <laughs> <laughs> it was a pleasure speaking with you today, Junko. Thanks for coming on the show. Likewise, a pleasure. Thank you so much. So, everybody, the couple books that I mentioned at the start of the episode that Professor Takeda wrote. Iran and a French Empire of Trade, 1700 to 1808, and the other Persian letters. And the other one was Between Crown and Commerce, Marseille in the Early Modern Mediterranean. I'll drop links to both the books in the show notes on the IthacaBound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Junko and everybody listening, as always, wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Bye-bye. Thank you. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.